Hello, this is William Fink of Christgenia.org. I apologize, this is the second program in a row we've had serious issues with Skype and, and um, well, Winamp. I use Winamp to play to my four radio servers, my four streams, and Skype to call in to talk to you on the same computer, and, and um, it's just not working, right? <clears throat> I'll have to... Um, really try to patch something up for tomorrow night's program when once again I attempt to have Sword Brethren here. I'm not sure that's going to be possible. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll resolve the issue in the morning. I, I've been using this system for two years. I set it up myself. I know how it works. It's never given me a problem. And starting last Saturday, all of a sudden it is. I apologize for that. I... I, I, I don't know what, what, why it came to be this way. It, it's just a technical glitch somewhere, perhaps with a Skype upgrade or something like that, and, and I can't figure it out. I, I, I will do my best tomorrow or during the week. Tonight, I'm going to present part two of our presentation on the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter one, we saw that the prophet had been chastising Israel for their sins, among which were their intercourse with other nations and their oppression of the poor of their people. We saw parallel we saw parallel prophecies in the writings of the contemporary prophets Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos, all of whom were announcing different aspects of the same basic messages. By the many different ways in which their prophecies corroborate with one another, as well as by all of the clear fulfillments of these prophecies, we see that these men were truly prophets of God, while at the same time there were many false prophets among the people whose works have not endured. We shall see more of that here in Micah chapters two, and three. Furthermore, in the opening chapter of Micah, the prophet uttered oracles against Israel, especially Samaria, and against certain cities of Judah, and then he warned that the judgment of God would come unto the gate of Jerusalem, but he never forebode the destruction of Jerusalem. It may be ascertained from the historical portions of Scripture and from history itself that the Assyrians who were about to invade Israel in fulfillment of these oracles would indeed take captive all but some small scattered remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel and also much of Judah especially those northern towns of Judah which Micah explicitly mentioned, but that the Assyrians would indeed be stopped at the gate of Jerusalem and not take the city of it itself. There is another prophecy which is coming at the end of chapter 3 where Micah does warn that Jerusalem would lay in heaps, and we'll discuss that when we get to it, but what we have to understand that all of these books of these prophets represent series, a series of visions that they had throughout their entire ministry, 
and that some of those visions were collected in, in writing and preserved down to us today. They weren't one contiguous book written from the beginning. As Micah says, his prophecies, in, in the opening of his book, he says his prophecies were given over the reigns of three kings, and we discussed that that may have been as long as nearly 30 years. Most notable from Micah chapter 1 is that the names of the towns of Judah, which Micah prophesied against, also have meanings. And an understanding of those meanings adds a much greater depth to his message because they are pertinent to the purpose and the meaning of his prophecy. Here we shall repeat this portion of Micah chapter 1 from verses 10 through 15 and offer some interpretation. However, we will not repeat many of the things which we offered from the Septuagint in our full presentation last week. Although they should not be ignored if one truly wants to study the prophecy in depth. From Micah chapter 1, I'm going to reread from verses 10 through 15 and offer some commentary. Where Micah says, Declare ye it, declare ye it not at Gath, that basically seems to be a proverb in ancient Israel, um, begging one not to inform the enemy lest they rejoice, namely, of course, the Philistines. Weep ye not at all in the house of Aphra, which means dust, or figuratively can mean derision, as the Septuagint translators understood it. In the house of Aphra, roll thyself in the dust, which is a sign of disgrace or humility. So we don't want to declare these things that are coming at Gath because we don't want the enemies rejoicing over our, our judgment, our misfortune, our, our being humbled. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Saphir. Now, Saphir means fair or beauty, and the Septuagint interpreted, interpreted the word as an adverb. Having thy shame naked, the inhabitant of Zainan. Now, Zainan is said to mean pointed in the enhanced Strong's lexicon, which accompanies Bible works. I omitted it from my notes errantly last week. Zainan is primarily a sheep pasture, and, and that's important, and it's important to the understanding of the prophecy. The inhabitant of Zainan, the inhabitant of the sheep pasture, came not forth in the morning of Beth Edsel, and that word morning, it, it's the, the, the um, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, it's to, to lament, to weep over the loss of something, right? And Beth Edsel can mean house of narrowing or house of nearness. And because Edsel is a very, um, a, a word with a lot of meanings, other interpretations are possible, but I believe the Septuagint version is good. The Septuagint version interprets Beth Edsel to mean, and they translated it, the house 
next to her. In other words, the Septuagint version of this passage leads us to believe, to understand that the passage is is saying that the sheep of the pasture, the inhabitants of the of, of the um, the sheep pasture, which is Zainan, the sheep of the pasture had no care for the house next to her or, or for their neighbors. He shall receive of you his standing. For the inhabitant of Marath, Marath means bitterness, but more appropriately, perhaps in this context, Marath can mean sorrow. And that's how the Septuagint translators understood it. The phrase may be interpreted, the phrase, the inhabitant of Marath, may be interpreted as he who dwells in sorrow. Now, let's keep in mind that well, well, at least I, I believe, and as I'm presenting this, that Micah had both meanings in mind because Marath and these other places were the actual names of towns in the area that he was prophesying against. So the, the inhabitant of Marath also means he who dwells in sorrow, waited carefully for good, but evil came down from Yahweh unto the gate of Jerusalem. Now this is a prophecy of the coming Assyrian invasions. Those are the people who sorrowed at the sin of Israel prayed for good. They prayed for change. We see that today. Identity Christians do that same thing throughout this country today. We pray for good. We pray for change. But all that's going to come is judgment from God the wrath of God upon the sinful, unrepentant of our people. O thou inhabitant of Lachish. Now, bear in mind that Lachish, as we discussed last week, means invincible. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. And that's because Israel thought that they were above reproach or judgment. They thought they could avoid punishment for their sin, for their behavior. When we get to the next, that, that this chapter 2 of Micah, verses 9 through 11, corroborates this interpretation. It, 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 it basically says the same thing that we're saying. The children of Israel thought that they were invincible, that's how come Lachish is the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. They thought they were invincible, so they thought they could not suffer judgment or punishment for their behavior. They thought they were avoided. Therefore, shalt thou give presents to Morshethkath, and we saw that phrase could mean simply Thou shalt send man to the possession of Gath. And, the how, and, and that's what we pointed out in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 10 perhaps, we pointed it out last week that Isaiah prophesied that the children of Israel would flee with the Philistines. They, they would flee the oncoming judgment. They will fly on the ships of the Philistines towards the west. The houses of Axib. Axib means deceit. Yes, it was the name of the place. It was the name of a place, but it was also a word that means deceit. Shall be a lie. 
Now that word lie comes from a related word, axab, axib, axab, to the kings of Israel. Now, verse 15 says, Yet will I bring an heir, and we showed, even from the Septuagint, that that phrase can mean, I will bring one who takes possession. Yet will I bring one who takes possession unto thee, O inhabitant of Marishah. Now, Marishah also means the summit. He shall come unto Adalam. Adalam means the justice of the people. O inhabitant of the summit, he shall come, the one who takes possession, shall come unto the justice of the people, the glory of Israel. And we explained last week the fulfillment of this in the fact that the Edomites who came to possess Marisa, Marashah, and many other cities in Palestine, how they eventually were able to take over Jerusalem when they were folded by the Maccabees into the polity of Jerusalem, the Edomites took over the city, the temple, the control of it, the Edomite king Herod. It took them a little over a hundred years, but that's what they did. They're taking possession of these cities eventually enabled them to take possession of the entire kingdom of Jerusalem and the temple. And they were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. But the crucifixion of Christ afforded the children of Israel mercy and release from the judgments of the law, and thereby the children of Israel were rendered righteous. The justice of the people, the glory of Israel. Therefore, we believe that much of Micah's prophecy concerning Israel's sin, judgment, and eventual restoration is encoded in a, in a way. The story is encoded into the names and towns the names of the towns of Judah which he prophesied against in Micah chapter 1. I hope that's understandable. Perhaps it's a little more concise than it was last week, I pray, because I had a few people ask questions. It's not that Micah wasn't having the towns in mind. It's that he was pointing out certain towns so that he can use their names because their names had common meanings. He could use those names to relay his message. And with this, we will start with Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to them that devise iniquity, that work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. Now that phrase, work evil upon their beds, that phrase is not a reference to the... Uh, I'm sorry, i got a problem with my screen. To, to the sexual fornication which had become commonplace at this time, and, and we see that it's commonplace in the other prophets, in Hosea, although it could certainly be inclusive of that, 
Rather, it is a reference to the proclivity of the people to dream up wicked schemes as they lie in bed at night, putting their ungodly desires to practice when they awake in the morning, rather than meditating on the Word of God at night, which is basically what Christians should do. They should contemplate on the Word of God and and on Christ and and on how they're going to help their kinsmen, things like that, useful, edifying things. The Septuagint reads, they meditated troubles and wrought wickedness on their beds, and they put it in execution with the daylight, for they have not lifted up their hands to God. When the children of Israel turn to Yahweh their God, he makes a smooth path for them. As John the Baptist said of Christ, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. Verse 2, And they covet fields, and take them by violence, and houses, and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. In a world without God, there is nothing left but materialism. In a people who have no hope, in a transcendental existence, meaning life after death, there is nothing left but carnal lust and the desire to enrich oneself, even at the expense of one's own kindred and tribe. The wealthy and governments which hoard themselves off to the wealthy under the guise of bureaucracy oppress their own kindred by using legal and political mechanisms in order to deprive them of their property and their hard-earned wages. Israel, fallen into apostasy, and the paganism which had been mandated by the state since the days of Jeroboam I. Remember Jeroboam I, the stories in 1 Kings chapter 12, he mandated a change in the Israelite religion when the ten tribes split from Judah and, and Benjamin, and, and actually the split wasn't that clean, but that's okay. He mandated a change to worship the golden calves. So we had a state-mandated paganism. And when that happened, Israel had fallen to the level of self-serving decadence, which is found in what we now call materialism. That's the sin of Israel. It's the sin of Israel which is... Um, prophesied and, and, and explained throughout Amos, throughout Hosea, and here throughout Micah in different ways. It's also very often in Isaiah. I, I, I don't mention Isaiah too much here because Isaiah is so much more all-encompassing than the other three prophets whose, whose prophecies are so much more pointed. The same state which most formerly Christian white nations find themselves in once again today is materialism. That's our God. We as a collective nation, 
and, and as collective nations, the European nations, Australia, Canada, that their God is materialism for the most part. That's what they practice. How do they not merit the impending judgment of Yahweh once again? We've repeated all these sins that ancient Israel has repeated. International trade, globalism. Well, well it, it's all the same sin on, on a much greater scale today. We see that Israel was chastised for the same reason by the contemporary prophets Amos and Hosea. In Amos chapter 3, we see this as one of the primary reasons given for Israel's judgment, where the prophet said, and I'm talking about what Micah said about robbing the poor, coveting fields, taking them by violence, taking houses away. This happens all over America today in several ways. We see that Israel was chastised for the same reason by the contemporary prophets Amos and Hosea. In Amos chapter 3, we see this as one of the primary reasons given for Israel's judgment, where the prophet said, and I'll read from verse 10, For they know not to do right, saith Yahweh, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Almost the same language that Micah uses here. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, an adversary there shall be, even round about the land. He's talking about the Assyrians. And he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Likewise, we read in Amos chapter 5, and I'll read from verse 11. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. The poor of Israel, just like today, and when I say the poor, I mean the people that aren't wealthy, the, the people that have to work for a living, we're tricked into believing that those people are middle class that make perhaps forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. They're middle class. Well, no, they're not. If you have to show up at, at some company every day and, and make a wage in, in order to exist tomorrow, well, well, yeah, you're poor. You're not middle class. That's a Jewish trick. The Jews created the middle class so that they could exploit it in their media and in their in 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 their um, corrupted form of politics. Amos five eleven. For as much as therefore you, as your treading is upon the poor and you take from him. Burdens of wheat, so the poor work for wheat, right? Ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, they afflict the just, they take a bribe, they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. The poor were burdened, and the rich benefited from their oppression. The rich were benefiting from the corrupt courts, the unrighteous government, and the burdensome taxes. The theme is recurrent throughout Amos, 
And we see in Amos chapter 8, and I'll read from verse 4, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, and even make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit? Today's merchants have modernized and secularized our Christian society and removed the obstacles that prevented them from trading every single hour of every single day, thereby removing the concept of the Sabbath from Christian society making the ephah small and the shekel great, we suffer the same thing today, where wages never rise as quickly as commodity prices, currency devaluation, price inflation, because the bankers are always skimming the economy and inflating the the money supply and, and thereby making the ephah small and the shekel great. Making the ephah small, the ephah was the measure of of grain and and liquids. Well, you go to the store 20 years ago and you bought a a pound of pasta, you got 16 ounces. Today you buy a pound of pasta, you get 13.8 ounces, I think it is, in in most instances. That's just one small example. You you buy a, a, a box of something and there's half as much in it that it was 20 years ago, and it cost twice the price. It's nothing new. The price inflation that we have here in America today, it's nothing new. They had it 3,000 years ago in ancient Israel, or or at least 2,700. And I'm sure it's older than that. It's the same old Canaanite tricks. While the primary scope of the prophecy of Hosea is the fornication and idolatry of Israel which resulted from a desire for riches through trade, to some degree Hosea also rebukes Israel for the same injustices against the poor of their own nation in Hosea chapter 12. Where Ephraim stands for all of the northern kingdom, we read from verse 7, He is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance in all my labors. They shall find none iniquity in me that were sinned. Yet with this attitude, Ephraim deceived himself, because in seeking the gain of ungodly merchandising, of ungodly trade with aliens, Israel indeed oppressed its own people, just as Christendom, all of the formerly Christian nations, have done today. Through this ungodly trade, Ephraim said, I am rich, and once again, The whore of Babylon supposes that she is rich, but in one hour her great riches shall be made as nothing. Revelation chapter 18, verse 17. Likewise, Christ said to the assembly at Laodicea, 
I'll pronounce it the, the, the standard way. Laodicea can be interpreted to mean self-righteous people. Christ said to them, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. The whore of Babylon, described in Revelation chapter 18, is judged because she enriched herself from international trade in merchandise, the same exact sin of ancient Israel for which they were also judged. The sins of ancient Israel, bow worship, and the seeking of riches in commerce with aliens go hand in hand. You cannot trade with alien people without accepting their persons and respecting their gods, making treaties with them that the children of Israel were explicitly told not to make. Thou shalt not seek their peace nor their prosperity all thy days forever. That's an example from Deuteronomy chapter 23. In turn, the pursuit of commercialism leads inevitably to individualism and to materialism, which alienate men from their own kindred and lead them to compete with one another. Where in Scripture does it say that Christians or that the ancient Hebrews ever competed with one another? Read the Exodus story of the collection of the manna. He who gathers much shall not have excess. He who gathers little shall not lack. We should care for our brethren, not compete against them. Paul and Barnabas, they were both tent makers, right? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Paul and Aquila, they were both tent makers. They didn't go to Corinth and set up opposing shops across the street from one, from one another. They worked together to ply their trade so that they both would benefit. Yet Christians have disregarded their Old Testaments and have therefore neglected to learn these lessons from the prophets. Competing against your brother is anti-Christian. It's promoted throughout our society by the Antichrist. Forcing your brother to compete against aliens for his wage? That's, that's, well, that's even worse. In turn, the enemies of Christ have taken the revelation, which is warning us of these very same things. The message in the revelation is no different. And they have interpreted it as a fantastic science fiction comic book scenario reserved for some time far off in the future, preventing Christians from learning from that as well. Verse 3. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily. For this time is evil. That evil is explained in Amos. It's already been mentioned here by Micah in an indirect manner. It's explained in Amos, Amos chapter 6, where Israel is prophesied against for many of these very same reasons given by Micah, as we've already pointed out. 
Amos 6.14 But behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith Yahweh, the God of hosts. And they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of the wilderness, which is the river of Egypt. The evil... This evil is coming upon the nation in the form of the imminent Assyrian invasions and the resulting captivity which the nation was not going to be able to avoid. This leads us to discuss what evil could come from God and to put certain things in perspective which are often misconstrued, usually by Bible clowns, this is because from a worldly perspective, and I'm speaking from a worldly perspective, good and evil are indeed relative. However, that does not mean that good and evil should be relative to Christians. They should not. They should be concrete. Good is agreeing with the words of Christ and, and, and God, Christ who is God, and evil is anything opposed to Christ and God. It's that simple. They're concrete. However, to the world, from a worldly perspective, they are relative. I'll explain that. Here from Isaiah 45, 7, we have the words of Yahweh God in reference to himself. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, Yahweh, do all these things. Here in Micah, Behold, against this family, meaning the children of Israel, do I devise an evil. Many people, or I should say many fools, attempt to abuse passages such as this one in Micah or in Isaiah, which we just quoted, and simple-mindedly assert, and I've heard people say this, and, and I've recently learned that a certain clown from the Dirty South also says this, that because Yahweh creates both good and evil, that Yahweh himself must therefore be Satan or the devil. That must by necessity create a serious problem for God who would have to bind himself in a pit for a thousand years. If he were Satan, he'd have to do that. And then again, when he has to throw himself into the lake of fire, if he were Satan and wanted to keep his word, God would have to throw himself into the lake of fire in company with the beast and the false prophet. Yes, he says those things in Revelation chapter 20. The evil which God creates... It's not evil to God. God is not Satan. That's crazy. But the evil which God creates is often evil to man. It is necessary evil in order that God may execute his judgment upon our works. When his judgment befalls us, it is evil in our perspective, in our worldly perspective. Oh, why did that happen to me? But to God, his judgment is righteous. Repentant men who recognize their sin should also see his judgment as righteous. If you don't, then you're not repentant. Even though that judgment is evil, to them at the time that they suffer it. 
when you repent, you understand that his judgment is righteous. As the proverb says, he that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. Proverbs chapter 13. That is why good and evil are relative, because there is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs chapter 14. In relation to this very judgment against Israel uttered here in Micah, we read in the prophet Isaiah, The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. Well, this consumption decreed is this very Assyrian invasion which is being forebode. For Yahweh God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian, he shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee, after the manner of Egypt, when the children of Israel were but were beaten by Egyptians, Moses stopped one of them, right? And, and were in bondage. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. Therefore the evil God brings upon man is ultimately brought for good. When men oppose God, they become adversarial to God. And the Hebrew word Satan primarily means adversary. Therefore, Peter, a good man and a child of Adam who was made in God's image, became Satan when he expressed his own will in opposition to Christ. Matthew chapter 16. But Peter became a small s Satan. And upon his repentance, he would no longer be such a Satan, being in agreement with Christ. That's what repentance is, to a great degree. When the angels, described in Revelation chapter 12, were cast from heaven, they corrupted the creation of God. Because of their corruption of God's creation, there are plants here which the Heavenly Father had not planted, Matthew 15. These plants started out as the tares which the enemy planted soon after the foundation of the world, Matthew chapter 13. These corruptions of God's creation, they are permanently and irreparably in opposition to God because their very existence is in opposition to God's law, kind after kind. Therefore, these constitute the capital S, Satan. Because until they are thrown into the lake of fire, they will always be in opposition to God.
because their origin is not from God, but began with that entity. It doesn't matter where you want to believe the angels fell from, but they began with that entity popularly known as the fallen angels who rebelled from God, who are described in Revelation chapter 12. In the epistles of Jude and Peter, in Luke chapter 10, and elsewhere. Because of the corruption of those who rebelled from God, they were, and their descendants still are to this day, born of the earth and not of heaven, as John explains in the fourth chapter of his first epistle. And therefore, because they are not born from above, meaning that they are not of God, or of the Adamic race which God created, they shall not ever see the kingdom of heaven, as Christ attests to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. While God, in order to execute his judgment upon man, may choose to employ either or both of the smallest Satans, such as the Assyrians and the Babylonians, or the capital S Satan, such as the Edomite Jews, or any of the bastard races, that does not mean that God himself is Satan. That's crazy. The scripture soundly refutes that idea. I'll read two scriptures that refute that idea. Real simple. From 3 John, verse 11. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is not is of God, but he that doeth evil has not seen God. From the epistle of James, chapter 1. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which Yahweh had promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. But every man is tempted, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The idea that God is Satan is absolutely contrary to Scripture. If God becomes your adversary, it's simply because you have set yourself against him. Or perhaps you came into the world set against him. As the Apostle John says, that at his time there were already many antichrists came into the world. Many antichrists which had been born in the Christogenia New Testament because that's what the Greek says. Verse 4, Micah chapter 2. In that day, referring to the evil time promised in verse 3, in that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, We be utterly spoiled. He has changed the portion of my people. How has he removed it from me? Turning away, he has divided our fields. I prefer the Septuagint here. 
Perhaps you'll see why when I read it. The Greek of the Septuagint, which Branton's version of the English reflects well here, punctuates the end of the verse quite differently. The portion of my people has been measured out with a line, and there was none to hinder him, so as to turn him back, him meaning the, the, the evil that's being brought upon the land that changes the portion of the people. Your fields have been divided. The children of Israel are warned that their lands would be taken away, that new divisions of those lands would be assigned to others, and that they would have no recourse in the matter, where it says, and there was none to turn him back. There was none to hinder him so as to turn him back. Yet there seems to be a deeper meaning here than simply a giving of the land of Israel over to the Assyrians. In the Septuagint version, Yahweh is attributed as having said, the portion of my people has been measured out with a line. Where this, in the King James says, he has changed the portion of my people. Well, which doesn't necessarily disagree with what I'm about to say. Yahweh's portion is his people. As he says in Deuteronomy 32.9, For the Lord's, or for Yahweh's, portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Therefore, the statement may be taken two ways, referring to the people themselves in relation to God and to the land in relation to the people. The people themselves were also divided, and some would be put to the sword while others would survive in the Assyrian captivity, and yet others would escape altogether. From Amos chapter 7, where we see a very similar prophecy at this very same time, verse 7, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And Yahweh said unto me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. The plumb line is in the midst of the people. It's dividing the people. Those who would be taken into captivity, those who were destined to be destroyed for their sins. Verse 5, Therefore shalt thou shalt have none that shall cast the cord by lot in the congregation of Yahweh. Remember, we're talking about the dividing of the land. None of Yahweh's people in Israel would have any part in the new division of the land. They would lose their lot in their own land entirely. Breton's ta translation of the Septuagint Greek interprets the words for in the congregation of the Lord with the text of verse 6. Prophecy ye not. Say to them that prophecy. They shall not prophecy to them that they shall not take shame. And, and I have some issues with this and, and the Septuagint translation, I believe, is a lot better 
once again. The Septuagint rendering of verse 6, according to Brenton's reading of the Greek, Weep not with tears in the assembly of Yahweh, neither let any weep for these things, for he shall not remove the reproaches. This to me makes much more sense in the biblical context of the time, as there were several other prophets, including Micah, who were indeed prophesying at this very time and warning Israel of the impending and irreversible judgment which was to come. These were, of course, Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. So where it says, they shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame, well, well I prefer the Septuagint version, which says, for he shall not remove the reproaches. Now the first part of the verse, prophecy ye not, say to them that prophecy, the Septuagint has, weep not with tears, neither let any weep for these things. The Hebrew word which the King James Version renders as prophecy in this verse is nataf, Strong's number 5197. Literally it means to ooze or to distill or by implication to fall in drops, meaning to weep, which is how the Septuagint translates it. Figuratively, it can mean to speak by inspiration. The King James translators rendered this word as prophecy on these three occasions, and also once in Micah 2.11, and once in Zechariah 13.3. Of all of these, the Septuagint only agrees at Zechariah 13.3 which shows that while the word may be interpreted as the King James Version has it here, that interpretation does not always seem to fit the context. Regarding Israel, while the prophets were indeed rejected by the people, as we see in Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, therefore the words prophecy ye not, say they to them that prophecy, those words are true, Yet the words, they shall not prophesy to them, I have to look at the Septuagint, at the Septuagint rendering and accept that because those words simply aren't true. Because all of these prophets, true prophets and false prophets, certainly did continue to prophesy to the children of Israel at this time. And we have the records of those prophets who were true. Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, and Amos. Understanding this, once again, we could hardly consider the King James Version alone to be inspired. Only the original God-breathed word is inspired. And from then on, men can only try to understand it so that it may be translated equitably. Men can also screw it up in translation and in copying. Verse 7. O oh, thou that art named the house of Jacob. Is the spirit of Yahweh straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walks uprightly? The punishment of Jacob was brought by his own doings. Yet even in captivity, Israel was promised that seeking righteousness, God would be with them. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, 
Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek Yahweh. In other words, the nation had to be destroyed. The people were going to be brought into captivity. And then they were being told it was time to seek their God. Till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you did trust in thy way in the multitude of your mighty men. They thought they were too strong to fail because their God was on their side. Well, their God was about to judge them for their sins. Once they were judged, then those who would survive that judgment were told to seek him. Verse 8, Even of late, my people is risen up as an enemy, though the word for enemy is not Satan in Hebrew. Ye pull off the robe, the garment, from them that pass by securely, as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children have ye taken away my glory forever. These verses are difficult to understand, and the very different reading found in the Septuagint, once again, doesn't really help the manner. I'll read 8 and 9 from the Septuagint. Even before time, my people withstood him as an enemy against his peace. They withstood God as an enemy against his peace. They have stripped off his skin to remove hope in the conflict of war. The leaders of my people shall be cast forth from their luxurious houses. They are rejected because of their evil practices. Draw ye near to the everlasting mountains. That's a little cryptic also. Yet the reading of this passage in the Dead Sea Scrolls closely resembles that of the King James Version based upon the Masoretic text. Verse 8 is explaining that the children of Israel had become wholly adversarial to God, which is indeed the case, as the records attest, throughout all of the prophets of this period, and also relates that they robbed the possessions of those who were peaceable. And verse 9, that they robbed the houses of widows and orphans. We see in Isaiah chapter 10, a prophecy made at this same time, or, or thereabouts, Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness which they have prescribed to turn aside the needy from judgment. In other words, the needy, the poor, couldn't get any equity in the courts. And to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. Now, if we were to accept the Septuagint reading of verse 9, we may compare it to Amos chapter 6, where the wealthy of the people in Israel are judged for taking advantage of the poor. From Amos 6 in part 1, Woe to them that are in, at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. In other words, the people ruling Israel at that time. Ye that, I'll skip to verse 3, 
Ye that put away, put far away the evil day, in other words, not believing they would be judged, and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory, and stretch themselves upon their couches, and eat the lambs out of the flock. And he's talking about his people, right? And the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the viol, and invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. And this verse 7 indicates that these are indeed Israelites, the chiefs of Israel, the chiefs of these tribes who are doing this to their own people. Verse 10. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. It shall destroy you. This ties in basically to where Paul talked about the people rejecting, not getting rest from Joshua, because they weren't obedient to, to Joshua or to God. This is not your rest because it is polluted. In other words, that this time of this ancient kingdom, it was polluted because the people were really never obedient to God. It shall destroy you, even with a sword destruction. So they're being told to depart. They're going to be forced to depart at the hands of the Assyrians. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, <clears throat> he shall even be the prophet of this people. Wine and strong drink symbolize good times and prosperity. The people deserve no other prophet than a false prophet, a prophet who would foretell good times, although their destruction was imminent. This is just another way that God is telling them that they were going to suffer at the hands of false prophets. We had referred to the account of the false prophet which Amos had encountered earlier in our presentation of this chapter of Micah at verse 6 where it was said, Prophecy ye not, say they to them that prophecy. In other words, the people did not want to hear prophecies of truth foreboding the judgment of their evil deeds. We're in that same predicament again today. Here is that account from Amos chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For Amos says, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. So we see that Amos was going about and, and, and taking the words of his prophecy and, and relating them to the people. And, and all these prophets, that's what they did. These records that we have in their books, that they're only a collection of the things that they told the people, which were actually recorded.
Also, Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee away into the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophecy there. But prophecy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. Then answered Amos, and said to Amaziah, I was not a prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And Yahweh took me as I followed the flock. And Yahweh said to me, Go, prophecy unto my people Israel. Now therefore, hear thou the word of Yahweh. Thou sayest, Prophecy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, Thy wife shall be a whore in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth out of his land. In the present circumstances, once again the Israel of God becomes distressed when they hear the words of truth. And I'm relating this to today. And when they hear even of the possibility of judgment for their wicked deeds, they don't want to hear it. They curse you. Verse 12. It's no different today than it was 2,700 years ago. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Bozrah. And, and that's unfortunate, but we'll get to that. As the flock in the midst of their fold, they shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. This is a promise of regathering in the captivity which they were about to enter into. However, Bozrah was one of the chief cities of Edom, and there is no other such similar statement in the prophets that Yahweh would gather his people to a city of the Edomites. All other prophecies of Bozrah only indicate Yahweh's judgment of eventual doom and destruction against Edom. Elsewhere, Yahweh stated that the children of Israel were going into captivity that he may sift them which infers a purification process from Amos 9. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. The word Bozrah is also a simple noun, and it means sheepfold. This is how both the Septuagint and many of the other versions based upon the Masoretic text have interpreted the word here in Micah. As our Redeemer told the Judeans, recorded in the Gospel of John, verse 16, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Most of the children of Israel never returned to Judea, 
after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, but were instead gathered together in Northern Europe, where nations emerged that were unknown before the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Christ is saying that he will gather the captivity. Here in Micah 2.12. Oddly, when, when you ask Judeo-Christians what happened to all of these Israelites taken out of Palestine by the, by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they'll just give you the deer in the headlights there and exclaim that they died or, or they were scattered and disappeared amongst the other people, never to be seen again. And they're, they're living there today in Iraq and Iran. And that's just crazy, but that's what they say. Verse 13. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and Yahweh on the head of them. Mainstream commentaries often see this as a messianic prophecy, an interpretation which is absolutely contrary to the context, and it's absolutely ridiculous. Rather, those whom Yahweh shall use to pass his judgment on Israel, they are the breaker who is depicted here as already coming. The statement that their king shall pass before them is primarily a reference to Tiglath-Pileser III, the first of the Assyrian kings to invade Israel proper, beginning around 742 B.C., and then several times later. Both he and his successors, Sargon II and Sennacherib, invaded and deported most of Israel and also much of Judah. And these kings customarily accompanied their armies during these invasions, as Micah describes here and as their own inscriptions attest. They are the breaker. Tiglath-Pileser, Sargon II, Sennacherib, they are the king that shall pass before them. Tiglath-Pileser first invaded Israel when Menahem was king, and he is called Pul in 2 Kings 15.19. But Menahem averted disaster by paying tribute. Tiglath-Pileser invaded Israel again when Pekah was king, 2 Kings 15.29. And the reign of Jotham, king of Judah, began in the second year of Pekah. Ostensibly, since the ministry of Micah must have begun before that invasion of Tiglath-Pileser in the time of Pekah, <laughs> I'm sorry, which is described as being imminent here, then Micah's ministry must have begun not long after Jotham came to be king. Tiglath-Pileser carried off into captivity many of the Israelites of Galilee and the areas beyond the Jordan, Transjordan, Reuben, half the tribe of Manasseh, Gad. 
upon the succession of Ahaz to the throne of Judah, <coughs> he subjected himself to Tiglath-Pileser and paid a large tribute of silver and gold to Kings chapter 16, thereby averting invasion. Samaria itself was not taken by the Assyrians until the reign of Sargon II in 722 or 721 B.C. Judah was not invaded by the Assyrians until the coming of Sennacherib after 704 B.C. during the reign of Hezekiah. <coughs> Here Yahweh professes that he would be at the head of the invading Assyrian armies. Therefore, the Assyrians could not fail. Israel would indeed be broken up by the breaker. Excuse me. Micah chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off of them, and their flesh from off their bones? They're feeding off the poor, right? Who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces. As for the pot, and his flesh within the cauldron. I like to believe that the prophet is speaking figuratively here. That feeding off the poor, oppressing the poor of the land, oppressing the widows and orphans and poor men, or, or the, 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 the working class in judgment, oppressing these people, they are doing these things figuratively. We must be careful not to interpret this criticism of the wealthy people and the princes of Israel in a manner which is sympathetic to Marxist economics. God is not a Marxism and a Marxist, and God hates Marxism. He tells us that the word is worthy of his meat, and we see from the words of Christ that in the kingdom of heaven, one servant is rewarded ten cities and another five but others only one, or perhaps even none, in exchange for the quality of each of their labors. That is not Marxism. It is justice. We have already seen here that this criticism of the wealthy of Israel is a recurrent theme throughout Amos and now in Micah. And this, besides the economic, the religious, and the social fornication which Israel had been guilty of and which is elaborately detailed in Hosea, this is one of the primary reasons for Israel's judgment. The wealthy have no excuse, for it is written into the laws of Yahweh precisely why he blesses and gives certain men the ability to acquire such wealth while others work hard and may have but little gained. Here it is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Why are some Israelites wealthy? Beware that thou forget not Yahweh thy God 
in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I commanded thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up and now forget Yahweh thy God, which brought forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy later end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. In other words, the people think that they got the wealth from their own ability. But thou shalt remember Yahweh thy God, for it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore unto thy fathers, as it is a, and it shall be, if thou do it all forget Yahweh thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, that I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which Yahweh destroyeth before your face. So shall ye perish, because you would not be obedient under the voice of Yahweh your God. For those of the children of Israel who are wealthy, God grants that wealth in order that his covenants with the patriarchs are upheld so that his kingdom may be established in the face of his enemies. They should in turn use that wealth they, that they have towards that same endeavor, oppressing the poor of their brethren by depriving of a fair wage, as the apostle James illustrates in chapter 5 of his epistle, or by withholding from them the things which they need to sustain themselves when we ourselves have an excess, or by forcing them to compete with aliens for labor or business based on price as a matter of efficiency, which is a capitalist Jewish deception. Those things are ungodly and violate the covenants and undermine the foundations of the kingdom. I'm going to give a real simple example, and, and this is the biggest failure of the modern Christian world, in, in my purview. It used to be that at one time a, a wealthy man reinvested the money back into his community. He gave men, doing that, he gave the working class men and the poor of the community the ability to work, the ability to have the opportunity to work in order to feed their own families and, and to gain advantages for themselves. The Jews came along with their stock market gimmicks and got wealthy men and, and well-off people to invest their money in IRAs, in 
emerging market funds, in developing market funds, in, in, in all of these international globalist gimmicks. Today, most men with investments, that's where they have their money. In, in stocks and bonds in foreign nations and, and in foreign companies, not in their local communities. If you're a, a, a wealthy, or, or when I say wealthy, I mean perhaps you have a few hundred thousand dollars to invest, or a million, and, and invest that overseas, you've made that at home. Chances are you made that by, by trading merchandise or, or by perhaps ranching, farming, whatever, in your local community. You've sold goods to people in your local community or services, and you've taken their money, and now you're going to take the profits, and you're going to invest it in some other community or some alien community on the other side of the globe. You are robbing your community. That, that's one device, and, and it happened back then, too. In, in the ancient world, there, there were shipping ventures overseas and, and men investing in, in farms in foreign nations and, and in goods created in, in, in Egypt, in India. The Romans had a huge import from India, all the way back to the, the, the second century B.C., and the Greeks had it before them. The Silk Route's been around forever. It, it's, this is nothing new, and it drains when we in, make money in our community and invest it outside of the community. We're stealing from the community. We're oppressing the poor of our own community. We're depriving them and the people of the community in general. So, so there's a lot of ways that we sin that these Jewish investment gimmicks and, and these Jewish economics that we're subject to but we don't even see how we're screwing up. We don't even perceive because we're not centered on our kindred and our community because we're individualist materialists who only care about our own IRAs and our own bottom line. So we steal from our own duties. We have no jobs in America today. We have no manufacturing because... Not because we don't know how to make stuff. Not because it's too expensive to make stuff here. That's all Jewish horse manure. We don't have jobs because most of our wealthy people, they have their investments tied up in international corporations and, and emerging market funds and, and bonds from overseas. That's why. It's real simple. But the Jews aren't really telling us why we have any jobs. They look for... Their media looks for 50 million other reasons, but they won't just tell you the truth. Not that I'm an economist. By no means. From James chapter 2, from verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he has faith and has now works, can they save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace. Be warmed and filled, like it happens, right? Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? One cannot profess belief and then not put those 
good things which God grants them into the practice of that belief unless one is a hypocrite. If you profess the faith and you don't practice it, you're a hypocrite. That's what a hypocrite is. Now, if anyone does not provide for his own, the words of Paul, and especially of of kin, he has denied the faith and is inferior to one of the faithless. Micah continues to address those princes of Israel who have oppressed the poor and who have cared more for the enrichment of their own lives than for the kingdom of God. Micah 3, verse 4. Then shall they cry unto Yahweh, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Prayers for oneself may certainly not be heard when one has neglected the prayer and the will of God. Verse 5. Thus saith Yahweh concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry peace, and he that puts not into their mouths. They even prepare war against him. Therefore night shall be unto you, that you shall not have a vision. And it shall be dark unto you, that you shall not divine. And the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yeah, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. Now the language used here indicates with all certainty that these prophets being chastised must have been legitimate prophets who had turned away from God, choosing the pursuit of mammon, choosing the prophecy for money, choosing to tell the people nice things that they wanted to hear for their own gain since it is indicated that before their error, they did indeed have visions and answers from God. So, these false prophets, yeah, they're false prophets because they became false prophets, but they were legitimate prophets. Verse 8, But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of Yahweh, and of judgment, and of, and of might, to declare unto Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Here the prophet Micah asserts that his ministry is a legitimate prophetic ministry. It seems that Micah must have had the same sort of opposition which Amos also faced from false prophets who attempted to silence him. The people simply did not want to hear of their own sin. They certainly did not want to hear of judgment. Hear this, I pray you, you heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. 
Yet will they lean upon Yahweh and say, Is not Yahweh among us? None evil can come upon us. The heads thereof judge for reward. The judges of the people give judgment for bribes. By this alone, the wealthy would always prevail over and be able to oppress the poor. The priests thereof teach for hire, like today's denominational sects. The ministers of the people work for the sake of money, and therefore teach what their masters want to hear. And the prophets thereof divine for money, doing that same thing which the priests do, foreboding good things that tickle the ears of the hearers for the sake of their own gain. Yet, Will they lean upon Yahweh and say, Is not Yahweh among us? No evil can come upon us. As we saw in Micah chapter 1, the meanings of the names of the towns of Judah which he had prophesied against were a major facet to the message which he related. Lachish was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, as the King James Version reads, Micah 1.13, because the name Lachish means invincible. Here we see corroboration for that interpretation of Micah 1.13, where Micah explicitly states that the people thought that they could get away with anything simply because they were Israel and they Yahweh their God would uphold them in spite of their injustices. Well, it just wasn't true. All of these things just as well describe the functionaries of the denominational sects within our own society who so wrongly teach that all one must do is to believe Jesus and be saved. In truth, the scripture does teach that all Israel shall indeed be saved, but many in Israel shall have no reward. Isaiah 45, 12, 1 Corinthians 3. If you seek riches, I mean, some people are rewarded riches in this life, and those riches and that wealth, they're a trial. Some of us are very successful in our business ventures, and when we become wealthy, that wealth, that's a test from God. Don't think that you're an Israelite and you're rich of your own accord, as we just read in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 8. If you're an Israelite, if you're a child of God and you're wealthy, that wealth is a, that wealth is a test. Will you use that wealth to further the advancement of his kingdom? to assist your needy brethren. That's the test. Yeah, sure, you could say, I, I sit a queen. I sit wealthy. I'm rich. Look at all the places in Scripture. In Amos, in Hosea, in Revelation chapter 18, where those words were spoken, in, in the message to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 2, if you're wealthy, that, that's fine. I mean, I don't want your money. But you better do with it what advances the kingdom of God and, and, and 
help your needy brethren because that's a trial verse 12 Micah chapter 3 the result of all this sin right Therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Many mistake the reports of the Roman plowing of Jerusalem in the days of Hadrian as the fulfillment of this prophecy. I hate to break this, but that's certainly not true. That interpretation is especially loved by Christian Zionists who are little but apologists for the Edomite bastards that are inhabiting Jerusalem today. However, instead, in the context of this entire prophecy here of, of Micah, and in the context of his contemporary prophets, Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah, we must look at the Assyrian and Babylonian destruction of Israel and Jerusalem for the fulfillment of this prophecy because it was the ancient kingdom of Israel and the first temple city of Jerusalem which Micah had in mind. It has nothing to do with 70 AD. Nothing at all. The word Zeon, let's talk about that word. You'll hear in a million says, oh, Zeon. That's another name for Jerusalem. No, it's not. The word Zion was originally applied to the quote-unquote city of David. Oh, that's another name for Jerusalem. No, it's not. Those people are all Bible clowns. Many of the mainstream denominational commentators mistakenly consider Zion to be Jerusalem or Zion to be or, or the city of David to be Jerusalem, but they're wrong. The word Zion was originally applied to be the city of David, but that's not Jerusalem. It was clearly only the Acropolis of Jerusalem to a single mountain within the city. From 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same is the city of David. So, Zion is the city of David. That's nice, but that's not Jerusalem. From 1 Chronicles, verse 11. And the inhabitants of Jebus, when we read Judges chapter 19, verse 10, we find that Jebus is Jerusalem. Jebus, which was also Jerusalem. Judges 19.10. Now I'll read again 1 Chronicles 11.5. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. But we're going to see that that was only the Acropolis of Jerusalem. It wasn't Jerusalem. The proof of that, Beyond, it, it's in several places in the Bible, but beyond any doubt, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we read that in the days of Solomon were gathered all the princes of the children of Israel to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh out of the city of David, which is Zion. 
Upon this being accomplished, we read, And they brought up the ark, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle. These did the priests and the Levites bring up out of the city of David, which is Zion. And the priests brought the ark of the covenant of Yahweh unto his place, to the oracle of the house, unto the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. So what we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 is the priests gather and the elders of the city and King Solomon and they take the ark of Zion and they put it in the new place, the temple which Solomon built. Well, where was the temple? It was in Jerusalem. Was it in Zion? No. They took the ark out of Zion. It is evident that Zion, the city of David, was on one mountain in Jerusalem. It was only one mountain in the city. And the temple was said to be on Mount Moriah, another mountain in Jerusalem. From 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where Yahweh appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Oman the Jebusite. So Zion was one mountain in Jerusalem. They took the ark out of it, and they put the ark of temple, which was on Mount Moriah, which was another mountain in Jerusalem. So Zion is not Jerusalem. Zion is one mountain in Jerusalem. The city of David is not Jerusalem. The city of David is that Acropolis, which David knew how to take from the Jebusites, and he did. Therefore, it was called the city of David. It was Zion. It was one mountain in this much larger city. Bible clowns say, oh, Zion, that's Jerusalem. No, it's not. It's one mountain in Jerusalem. It's not Jerusalem. The word, or rather the concept of Zion, later transcended this original application. And it was taken to mean something much greater in the books of the prophets. But it still wasn't Jerusalem. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 51, we read this in the Messianic prophecy, and I'll read from verse 3, Isaiah 51, verse 3. For Yahweh shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and the gladness shall be found therein thanksgiving and the voice of melody and I have put my words in thy mouth and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundation of the earth and say unto Zion thou art my people Often in the scriptures we read that Yahweh dwells in Zion. From the ninth psalm, from verse 11, Sing praises to Yahweh who dwells in Zion. Declare among the people his doings.
Ostensibly, Zion became a, prof a, a prophetic epithet for the mass of his people who dwell with him. However, appropriately, the Hebrew word, Zion, it means a parched place, which is indeed descriptive of his people, apart from him. In Micah 3.10, the prophet addresses the heads of the house of Jacob and the princes of the house of Israel, ostensibly referring to both Israel and Judah, to both halves of a long-divided kingdom, a kingdom Judah has had no authority over for, for well over 300 years. And then he says that they build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. And therefore the meaning of the word Zion cannot be limited to the city of David, which is merely a small part of Jerusalem. Rather, it must be understood in its transcendent application to refer to the nation and people of Israel as a whole. Just as Isaiah said, Isaiah fifty one sixteen that Yahweh plants the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion thou art my people the nation the people were indeed plowed like a field by the Assyrians, so that Yahweh could then sift the house of Israel among all nations like his corn is sifted in a sieve, as he promised in Amos 9. All of the cities of Israel were overturned as the blade of a plow does to the soil of a field. After the later Babylonian invasions, Jerusalem did literally lie in heaps, as Nehemiah attests, nearly 70 years later. Oh, some people would argue that it was over 100 years later, but they don't know any better. They're idiots too. Nehemiah attests nearly 70 years later when he says in Nehemiah chapter 2, before anything was built, so this has to be before 516 B.C. It has to be before the end of Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy concerning Jerusalem. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. The city still laid in ruins, in heaps, seventy years later, whether whether Nehemiah was on horse or donkey, there was no place for the beasts that was under him to pass, or camel. We don't know. Then went I up in the night by the brook, 
and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned. Nehemiah returned to Persia from whence he had come. Nearly all, if not all, of the denominational commentators believed that Nehemiah followed Ezra, and all those commentators are wrong. Nehemiah actually preceded Ezra by several decades. We discussed this at length and proved it in the second part of our two-part presentation of chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark back several years ago. Um, I'll put a link in, in, in the notes to this podcast, but it's easily found at Christagenia. If Nehemiah's beast could not pass into the heart of the city due to the rubble, then Jerusalem was not plowed after its destruction by the Babylonians. Neither could Ezra and his 42,000 people even have been there. While the Romans under Hadrian were said to have run a plow over the city as a commemoration of its destruction, they must have removed much of the rubble first. I'm not disputing that, that account. It, it's there is strong indication that it indeed happened, but that doesn't mean that it's the fulfillment of this prophecy. The words here in Micah, which he says, where he says, "Zion, for your sake, shall be plowed as a field," cannot refer to the first century A.D. destruction of Jerusalem or to the time of Hadrian in the second century A.D., but to the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions of ancient. Israel, which is exactly what Micah was forewarning of throughout this chapter, has nothing to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Not a thing. It's a British Israel pipe dream. It's a Zionist, a Christian Zionist pipe dream. Likewise, as we've seen, the term Zion clearly has a greater meaning than that which refers to the city of David alone, which is its, its original use, and that was only one mountain in Jerusalem. It was not the entire city. It was never the entire city. And the term never referred to Jerusalem as a whole. In Micah, the plowing of Zion has to do with the Assyrian destruction and captivity of the people of Israel, along with most of Judah. Isaiah chapter 51 Zion refers to the people of Israel in these prophecies. Thank you for listening. I apologize about the talk shoe problems. I, I, I pray that most of those people found their way to Christiania or will find their way to the podcast. I have um, a challenge ahead of me tomorrow for tomorrow's program. I should be here with Sword Brethren. Pragmatic Genesis, part 15 the three tribes of Judah, and a discussion of Judah and Tamar, if time affords us, it should. It, it's, it's kind of pertinent to the three tribes of Judah, but we should have enough time to spend sufficiently on, uh, on the, entire, the, the entire topic. I will be here next week. I will be Yahweh willing in the outskirts of Philadelphia, I will be here next Friday night with Mike Delaney. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.